Hello and welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Moya Lathan McLean and tonight I'm joined by Michael Walker. Michael. Pleasure to be joining you. I'll be watching closely for tips. <laughs> I don't think there is anything in this world I can teach you. Uh, oh, tonight's stories, we will be talking about Labour's refusal to condemn the potential use of white phosphorus in Gaza. We'll also be discussing the biggest Labour councillor rebellion yet. Let's go to our first story. Over the past two weeks, Israeli forces have repeatedly bombed refugee camps in Gaza, resulting in hundreds of casualties. This week alone, Gaza's largest refugee camp, Jabalia, has been bombed twice. Gazan officials say nearly 200 have been confirmed dead from those airstrikes. Personnel at the nearest hospital to Jabalia have reported at least 400 casualties in need of treatment. Today, Israel hit another refugee camp located in central Gaza. Biraji refugee camp is home to at least 44,000 registered Palestinian refugees who were originally displaced from East Palestine in 1949 by Israeli forces. Now, Biraji was previously bombed on 17th of October. It has now come under fire again. This video was posted by Palestinian journalist Motaz Azazia earlier today as he raced to the scene. Heading to the bridge refugee camp, an airstrike destroyed a square, a whole square. A lot of injuries arrived to the hospital. Testimony from those on the ground suggests that an entire residential area has been destroyed, with dozens of casualties already reported. Once there, Motaz Azazia shared footage of the destruction awaiting him. This guy, he lost his whole family, entire family. <laughs> Israel had previously warned civilians in northern Gaza to move south for safety, including refugee camps in the centre of the territory. But a BBC Verify investigation into Israel's military communications to Palestinian civilians has found increasing attacks on areas deemed safe by the IDF. As I just mentioned, at the beginning of Israel's military campaign against Gaza, they told civilians to move south for their own safety. Hundreds of thousands of Palestinians did as they were ordered to. But central and south Gaza has come under increasing bombardment from Israel ever since. And on several occasions, the BBC Verify team found that specific instructions were issued to civilians in Gaza, advising them to move to certain areas in the south. But in the following days, those areas were targeted by airstrikes. The BBC used four examples of bombings carried out by the IDF in the past few weeks on areas that they had previously designated as safe. In one example, the BBC investigation found that the IDF issued warnings on the 8th of October for residents in two neighbourhoods bordering central Khan Yunus to leave their homes and go to, quote, Khan Yunus city centre. But just two days later, on 10th of October, the IDF bombed multiple targets in central Khan Yunus. Another warning was issued by the IDF on the 8th of October to residents of Rafa in southern Gaza. They were told to take shelter in Rafa city for, quote, your safety. A map in an accompanying IDF video showed an arrow directing people towards a location marked Rafa. But on the 11th of October, the centre of Rafa was bombed. This pattern was repeated again in the next few days. On 16th of October, the IDF had told Gaza City residents again to move south to Khan Yunus if, quote, your safety and the safety of your loved ones are important to you. Three days later, on the 19th of October, Khan Yunus was bombed again. On the 8th of October, an IDF warning was issued telling residents of the eastern and southern Magazi area to go to camps in central Gaza. The BBC Verify team analysed an accompanying map shared by the IDF and found that there were no camps in the location specified. However, there were three refugee camps nearby, and two of those, Nusrat and Baraj, were struck on successive days by airstrikes on the 17th and 18th of October. 
Since then, these camps alongside Jabali have been bombed on multiple occasions by Israel. The BBC asked the IDF if warnings had been provided for each of the strikes highlighted in their investigation. This is what the IDF said in response. We cannot provide any further information regarding these specific locations. We called on civilians in Gaza to move south for their safety, but will continue striking terrorist targets in all parts of Gaza. In accordance with international law, the IDF takes precautionary measures in order to avoid damage to the civilian population. These measures include warnings before strikes in cases where it is possible to do so. Well, Michael, what does this suggest about the promise of safety under Israel's Gaza assault? Well, I mean, we've known pretty much since the 7th of October that nowhere in, in Gaza is safe. They've told people we're being humanitarian by giving people warning. Hamas didn't give us warning. We're giving them warning, telling them to move to, to the south of Gaza instead of saying, staying in the north. People move south. Some of them get shot on the way, by the way. But then if they do get to the south, they also get bombed. Um, I've spoken to people on this program or spoken to one man on this program who's had 21 family members lost in their family home in the south of Gaza. And I just find it... <laughs> You know, in some ways, this 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 story becomes sort of grimly repetitive, doesn't it? Every day we see new atrocities committed by Israel in in Gaza, and I think what's just becoming more and more shocking to me is that people are still going along with it. You know, you've still got people in both of our major political parties in quite a lot of our media establishment. I mean, the Financial Times has now called for a ceasefire, but I've seen the Economist today sort of put out their. Um, editorial suggesting no 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 for the for the for peace what we have to do is keep bombing gaza and i just can't believe people are letting israel get away with this i mean take a step back how did we get into this position right so israel denied fatah any possibility of a just peace what did that do that increased the popularity of hamas understandably then you end up putting 2 million people under siege for 17 years lots of people get very angry understandably then some people, you know, motivated by that anger, fight back. Many ways, in horrific ways. Of course, I'm I'm against the killing of of civilians, but you know, armed resistance in general, I think, is okay, but not when you're killing civilians. But still, it's Israel that created this situation, and now they get to say, "Oh, this has been forced upon us. We have no choice. We have no choice but to bomb to smithereens, refugee camps, and kill." thousands of, of children, right? We have no choice but to kill thousands of children. And you know what? We're trying our damned hardest to kill, um, to minimize how many we kill. Now, it's it's morally repugnant and people are letting them get away with it. And when I read these articles, so I read the Economist editorial, they were basically saying, you know, that we can only have some path to peace once we've eliminated Hamas so that Israel can have a negotiating partner um, where they can genuinely come to some sort of peaceful solution, right? The, the only way that Israel is going to come to any kind of peaceful solution is if there is massive pressure on them from outside. It's not going to come from within Israel at this point in time. It's going to have to come from outside in the form of sanctions, in the form of boycotts in the form of massive diplomatic pressure, in the form of us not selling them arms to use to bomb the people they are occupying. Yet suddenly the whole political and media class, it seems, have said, oh, you know what? I I'm sure, I'm sure. We we've seen what they've done over the past 70 years, but I'm sure this time, if we just let them bomb a few more kids, kill a few more families to try and kill one Hamas commander here or one Hamas commander there, I'm sure after they've done that, then they'll come to the table and then they'll compromise and then we'll have peace. It's nonsense. Nonsense indeed, Michael. And it's interesting you're seeing, you know, the beginnings of, I think, individual pockets who are realizing that, you know, global world leaders like the US, the UK are not going to do anything about this, that they are going to stick to their humanitarian pauses at the maximum that they're willing to get involved. So you, instead you've got, you know, Jordan's recalling ambassadors and you've got Belgian trade unions who are saying, well, we're not going to, our workers are not going to handle any arms shipments to Israel anymore. And that, that is really interesting. I, the, the locus of power, uh, I think, will be shifting quite severely after this conflict. It just depends whether it will be too late for the Palestinians who are living under its barrage. Let's move on to our next story. As the Israeli army prepares an assault on Gaza City, miles away in the occupied West Bank territory, violence is also escalating. Three million Palestinians are estimated to live there, and since the 7th of October attacks, Palestinians in the West Bank have said they've been thrown into a, quote, pressure cooker of accelerated death and displacement. 
At least 125 Palestinians have been killed by Israeli forces and armed settlers in just under four weeks. And nearly a thousand Palestinians have been forced out of their homes by settlers. Now, this is from a report in The Guardian about the residents of Zanuta, a Palestinian village in the South Hebron Hills. After weeks of intense settler violence in the aftermath of the Hamas attack on Israel on 7th of October, Zanuta's 150 residents have made a collective decision to leave. Armed settlers, some in reservist army uniforms, some covering their faces, have begun breaking into their homes at night, beating up adults, destroying and stealing belongings, and terrifying the children. After decades of a desperate fight to cling onto their land, the community has decided they have lost. On Monday, men and women cried as they dismantled their homes and haphazardly packed solar panels, animal feed and personal belongings onto pickup trucks. One Zanuta resident, 71-year-old Issa Ahmad Baghdad, compared the situation to the 700,000 Palestinians who were displaced in 1948 by Israel's creation, some of whom are in the refugee camps that we were talking about earlier in Gaza. Now Baghdad said this, It is a new Nakba. My family are going to Rafat. But we don't know anyone there. We don't know what to tell the children. Most of this displacement is taking place in a space called Area C, which is wholly controlled by Israel. Palestinians are also being arrested en masse. Nearly 1,450 West Bank residents have been detained since the 7th of October. The majority are being held in West Bank prisons without charge, according to reporting by the Financial Times. These detainees are also being treated inhumanely by Israeli forces. A spokesperson for the Palestinian Prisoner Society told Al Jazeera that every Palestinian in Israeli custody is at huge risk. They said this. We are receiving information of daily mass beatings of the prisoners. They, the Israeli authorities, are threatening to kill them. No one has been spared. Footage has also circulated this week from Hebron, showing men in Israeli military uniforms beating bound and blindfolded men, Palestinian men, several of whom have been stripped naked. There's no confirmation that these are IDF soldiers, though, because armed settlers have also taken to wearing reservist uniforms. And in the clip, one of the men can be seen wearing a type of kippah that is favoured by religious nationalist settlers. On Wednesday, the European Union's Foreign Office described the actions of settlers in the West Bank as, quote, terrorism. In a statement, they said this. The upsurge of settler terrorism in the West Bank has led to very high numbers of civilian casualties and Palestinian communities being forced out of their homes. The situation could get out of control and is causing unspeakable suffering to local communities. Urgent measures are needed. Israel has the duty to protect civilians in the West Bank from extremist settler violence, to hold perpetrators accountable and ensure that the IDF intervenes. It is a legal obligation that must be fulfilled. This adds to an already tragic situation in Gaza, increasing the risk of dangerous escalation of the conflict, which must be avoided at all costs. Speaking to me earlier today from Ramallah was Nur Adeh, a Palestinian political analyst and former Palestinian Authority spokesperson. I began by asking whether it's accurate to call the displacement in the West Bank a new Nakba. I would call it a continuation of the Nakba. Um, and that's because I, I think it's important to remember what happened in the Nakba. So let's get that off uh, our shoulders first. In, in 1947, uh, through 1948, Palestinians were systematically dispossessed uh, of, uh, from their land. Uh, about 800,000 Palestinians were driven out uh, of their homes. Some of them, or many of them, were promised to uh, return once the fighting stopped. Of course, that has not happened, and they continue to languish in refugee camps. Now, seeing the displacement um, in the West Bank, but in, on, a, on this massive scale in the Gaza Strip, evokes those memories of people who lived through the Nakba and of their descendants who, uh, you know, continue to live on the transgenerational trauma of being uh, dispossessed of your land, of your property, of uh, being denied the right to um, return to it. Um, and the fears are very real, especially given what we're hearing from, you know, Israeli sources about what the uh, plan that Israel has for Palestinians in Gaza and how it wants to uh, simply really relocate them, get rid of them altogether uh, and, and kind of uh, re take over the Gaza Strip as if it was never uh, populated. 
Illegal Israeli settlers are very intimately involved in the current escalation of violence that's happening in the West Bank. Previously, they've been regarded as civilians. But are they, for all intents and purposes, now part of the armed forces? I'm not going to say what they are legally because I'm not a legal expert, but I can tell you they're very well armed. In fact, among Israelis, they are the most armed per capita. And since October 7th, we've seen the Israeli Minister of National Security, Itamar bin Gvir himself, um, a, a violent settler, uh, had convicted of terrorism in an Israeli court, hand out more than 20,000 pieces of automatic weapons to uh, mostly Israeli settlers. And before that, we've seen him taken, taking administrative and legal measures to facilitate uh, the use of those weapons against Palestinians and to ensure that settlers wouldn't be held accountable. We've also seen several uh, uh, investigative reports showing how Israeli settlers work uh, side by side with the Israeli army in attacking Palestinian uh, villages and cities across the West Bank. Um, and, and even if they don't, when the Israeli settlers attack a Palestinian village, the Israeli army is never far behind. Uh, it is there to cover, to protect, and to attack Palestinians uh, if they try to defend themselves against the, uh, the onslaught. Is the Israeli state using these settlers to do the work of the army, but under this sort of shield of plausible deniability? You know, they're civilians, they're settlers, they're not acting under direct orders, they're not officially part of the armed forces, and therefore it's not really a new front in this war. I think that's a brilliant question, and I would say yes, absolutely. Um, and that's an extension of the tactics used in 1947 through 1948. It was um, in many ways depicted as an intercommunal war where you would have uh, armed militias um, attack Palestinian villages, uh, terrorize them, promise them with more death and destruction if they don't leave. Um, and they went through villages systematically that way and caused uh, the Nakba. So the uh, um, you know settlers of 2023 are simply finishing the job, if you will. And if you take that um, in and and keep in mind statements from Israeli settler leaders who are members of the Israeli Knesset, who are part of the Israeli governing coalition, uh, who say that we need to decisively finish the Nakba. We didn't get the job fully done in 1948. We must do it now. Then you've got yourself the bigger picture of Israeli settlers doing the bidding of the settler movement, of the Israeli state that is now governed by that movement, um, guided by messianic ideology and, and really by outright racism that views this land as uh, one that can only be exclusively for uh, Israelis and that Palestinians must be gotten rid of. Uh, they're not even recognized as Palestinians. We're referred to as Arabs, right? And, and that, uh, in a way, I think mentally uh, allows them to make the argument to themselves and their supporters in the West um, that these Arabs can just assimilate anywhere. Uh, they don't need to be here. Uh, this is the land that belongs to Israel. Regular military raids are being conducted by the IDF in the West Bank in places like Jenin Camp, despite the fact this is obviously, you know, miles away from the front where Israel is supposedly fighting Hamas. What purpose and reasoning is the IDF giving for conducting those raids? And does it actually stack up with the, what you think the real purpose might be? Well, the, the stated objective is always to, uh, you know, um, enforce law and order, to uh, combat uh, uh, terrorist cells. I mean, you can, you know, pick uh, any one of the excuses presented um, it, to kind of justify these raids, which have been going on long before uh, the this war uh, on Gaza began. Uh, in fact, for the past two years, Israel has stepped up its attacks in the West Bank uh, to the point where UN agencies were sounding the alarm and they were saying that there was a record number of Palestinians being killed on the West Bank, uh, numbers they hadn't seen in the past 15 years, a uh, record number of Palestinian homes demolished and Palestinian land uh, confiscated by the Israeli army. And that's why I think it's important to remember what the government agenda here is. The, uh, this Israeli coalition 
um, in its coalition agreement, made it a point to state that uh, part of its objective is to annex the West Bank, is to uh, bring the West Bank, the occupied West Bank, under Israeli sovereignty, um, to make sure that Israeli settlements are empowered and expanded, and to prohibit Palestinian uh, construction, which they view as illegal in the West Bank on Palestinian land, and to also crush Palestinian aspirations for freedom. So um, these raids are, are there, um, A, to maintain uh, the occupation, B, to remind ordinary Palestinians who's boss, and C, to kind of throw everybody off balance, to maintain a sense of vulnerability among civilians. Um, these attacks target small villages, towns, refugee camps, but also major uh, uh, centers like Ramallah. Uh, just today, they were in the heart of uh, the city, uh, um, uh, conducting a large operation to, I think, I believe, detain one uh, young man, um, a university student, I believe. And in the process, they killed two young Palestinians, including a child. Um, so I, I think it's important to view that in, in that context, to remember that Israel has to maintain its control of the West Bank by violence. That's the only way it can rule over Palestinians against their will. Uh, they don't uh, want that rule to continue. And as such, uh, there are many different ways in which Israel uh, kind of flexes its muscles at the expense of Palestinian blood on a daily basis here in the West Bank. Most of the current displacement is taking part in Area C, which is directly controlled by Israeli authorities. What's happening in the occupied West Bank outside of Israel's control? What is happening to Palestinians there? Israel is really in control of all of the West Bank. I mean, these ABC um, classifications that were part of the interim agreements of the so-called peace process that was signed about 30 years ago um, are uh, semantics at this point. Uh, but Area C, in terms of geography, covers 60% of the West Bank. It's the majority of the territory. Uh, area A and B is where most of the population is, and those areas also are raided by the Israeli army. Um, they, you have home demolitions as well in area A and B where the Palestinian Authority operates, where it is it theoretically has control. Um, and even in terms of budget, the Israeli uh, government has budgeted uh, activities uh, uh, that would advance uh, settlements and settlement interests in area A. Uh, and I would give you an example. Um, at the beginning of the year, there was a large bill advanced in the Israeli Knesset and it approved uh, construction or uh, what did they call it, uh, heritage preservation activities in the West Bank. Uh, uh, and it was to the tune of several million dollars and that budget included activities in the area A, in the heart of Palestinian uh, cities in the West Bank. So to Israel, uh, for Israel, these, these distinctions don't really... Um, matter much. They treat Area C, C as de facto under Israeli uh, uh, sovereignty, um, uh, but they also uh, treat Area A and B, the cities and towns where most Palestinians live, um, as fair game, uh, just the same. Palestinian Authority has called a general strike. What is this hoping to achieve and is it enough? Well, you know what? Nothing is enough until the blood uh, uh, letting stops, until the slaughter in Gaza stops. But I think um, uh, the, the call for a strike was by all the political factions and it was endorsed by the PA. And in my mind, it's, uh, it's just a way to kind of allow people to express their anger because people are uh, besides themselves. They are hitting the street and, and, and um, expressing anger as the, the images coming out of Gaza, the pain, the agony, the feeling of um, constant helplessness uh, while you watch your friends and your loved ones and your family, in many cases, being slaughtered uh, like that is driving people out of their mind, and rightly so. And so the tension is palpable in the West Bank, because on top of everything else that we were talking about in terms of the reality of occupation, you have that. Uh, major 
assault on your being as a Palestinian, on your soul as a Palestinian happening now in Gaza. And so people feel the need to do something, right? So whether it's a strike or, you know, going to the street and protest or boycotting Israeli goods, they're nominal uh, symbolic steps, but it's really... Um, people's way of saying we want to do whatever it is that we can that, that is under our control. The expectation, of course, is that political actors representing Palestinians would do more uh, to uh, kind of push the world in the right direction. Um, and, and even that, I think there's an, a, a general understanding, a very frustrating, bitter understanding among, among Palestinians that... Um, the world seems to have agreed to kind of uh, allow Israel to do what it wants to do um, in Gaza and the West Bank. It has given it free reign. And Palestinians are neither being consulted nor given the time of day uh, to even defend themselves. So that adds to the cocktail of anger and fear and so on. Something that I'm not seeing discussed as much is the economic situation in the West Bank. I know that uh, Israel has blocked millions going to the Palestinian Authority in recent weeks and that people cannot commute to their jobs and have lost them as a result. What is the impact currently on the local economy because of the wider crackdowns on the West Bank? It's devastating. Israel has frozen Palestinian tax money that it collects in exchange for a very high fee on behalf of the Palestinian Authority, uh, it has frozen those funds. And so the Palestinian Authority, which is almost already uh, basically bankrupt at this point, um, uh, um, is going to be struggling to pay uh, uh, salaries. It has not been able to pay full salaries to its civil servants uh, for almost two years now. This has a domino effect on the economy because there is no buying power. Uh, people who owe money to the bank, uh, to uh, grocery stores and so on. So the domino effect is huge. Uh, other restrictions imposed by Israel, including um, not, you know, uh, not allowing uh, Palestinians who previously had working permits in Israel to go to their work, uh, has also meant the termination of employment for thousands. The economy is being choked, choked out of life. Um, I'm not sure how long it can, uh, you know, continue fighting for the last breath, but um, it has been on its knees uh, for several months, if not two years at the very least. These measures uh, just show us one more dimension of how untenable the situation is. Um, you've got severe economic difficulties, you've got more land being taken, more resources, uh, you have a government that is struggling uh, month to month to pay part of the salaries it owes to civil servants, to uh, part of the money it owes to uh, service providers like uh, uh, pharmaceutical companies and uh, electricity companies and so on. And, and then you have that overbearing reality uh, of occupation that overshadows every detail of, of ordinary people's lives. And so it, it is not just untenable, it is unbearable. Um, and the the world so far has um, managed to um, convince themselves that they can ignore it. They can issue a few statements, uh, declare some concern, um, and just let it be, uh, trusting that it will, you know, work itself out. There may, may be a few skirmishes in the West Bank, but it will remain more or less under control. I think given what's happening right now, uh, given how explosive in the situation is, how uh, high emotions are running, I, if I were a policymaker in the West, I would reconsider. You talk about this untenable situation. You say, you know, it is this pressure cooker. Um, what do you think is going to happen next in the West Bank? Will it be Israel making a move? Will it be Palestinian people if global leaders don't step in? Look, Palestinians are very unpredictable. And the fact that they might not be um, seen by the world as reacting um, is misleading. I think um, they, they've proven uh, time and time again over the decades that they... Uh, take the initiative when people least expect it. 
Um, I think Israel is watching international reaction to what's happening in Gaza, and it's taking note. It's uh, drawing very important conclusions, very deadly conclusions about how high the threshold is internationally to the brutality Israel is allowed to mete out to the Palestinians. It will employ those lessons in the West Bank, and it will employ them to advance that agenda of ethnically cleansing the West Bank, of annexing that territory, and of concluding in its mind, once and for all, uh, the, uh, the story of the Nakba. So taking over the entirety of, the, of historic Palestine with as few Palestinians as possible, and not talking about Palestinian rights uh, once and for all, demanding that Arab countries just take care of refugees on a humanitarian basis. In many ways, Israel wants to take us back to where we were in 1948. I don't, I don't believe that's possible, but I think in terms of strategy, Israel is uh, drawing uh, very potent uh, conclusions from what it has been allowed to do so far in Gaza, and it will use those lessons uh, on the West Bank um, in short order. Before I move on to our next story, I, I do have some news about Navarra Media. We've almost hit a major milestone in our fundraiser. Just under 2,000 people have signed up since we started this fundraising campaign. So a big thank you if you're one of those new supporters. But I'm hoping tonight we can hit that figure of 2,000 new supporters. We are very, very close. And we are trying to build something here, media that is people-powered. But for that, we need people behind us. So to become a regular supporter, head to our website at navaramedia.com slash support and donate anything you can afford from just one pound per month. That is navaramedia.com slash support. The link for that is also in the description below. Let's go on to our next story. Now, there have been plenty of individual Labour MPs and hundreds of councillors who have rebelled against Keir Starmer's line on Israel's military campaign in Gaza. But something has just happened in Sheffield, which is quite different. This is a report published on navaramedia.com today. It explains how all 31 Labour councillors who sit on Sheffield City Council have voted in favour of a Green Party motion calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. The vote came after 15 Labour councillors told party leadership on the council that if Labour did not vote to back the motion, they would resign their positions, as dozens of other councillors have done elsewhere. This is thought to be the first time Labour councillors have voted for a motion calling for a ceasefire in a public meeting since the Hamas attacks on the 7th of October. Speaking in the debate, Councillor Abistan Mohammed, who is Labour's parliamentary candidate for Sheffield Central, said this. There will only be just and lasting peace when we end the violence and when we appraise the situation on the ground honestly, recognising the historical context. The approach in Sheffield has been quite different to elsewhere where rebel councillors have generally had to resign. In one northern town, Labour rebels have even formed a new party. Tardily from Tribune tweeted this on Tuesday. New Blackburn councillors who left the Labour Party over Keir Starmer's comments on Gaza have formed a new political party. And that's a group of nine. Michael, new parties being formed. Is this a significant or even new development in politics? Considering where Labour are in the polls, I don't think Keir Starmer is going to be particularly terrified about this sort of throwing the next general election. I think there are definitely you know, council seats or it could be very significant. Potentially, you could see sort of Labour lose control of certain councils. And um, there will be some seats. And obviously, we, we need to keep repeating. This is uh, the issue of Israel-Palestine and the human rights abuses, the, the war crimes in Gaza. is not just a community relations issue. It's not that, oh, Muslims don't like the war and Jews do support Israel, right? This is actually an issue of, of social justice. And I don't think we should talk about foreign policy just in terms of ethnic minority groups. But clearly, um, Muslims do disproportionately care a lot about um, the people of Gaza and the Gaza war. And so I think what you are seeing is it is especially Muslim councillors and councillors who have large Muslim populations, and then also sort of left-wing councillors who really care about international justice who are resigning. And the, the Sheffield situation is really interesting because obviously what you've seen in most places is you've got, you know, a considerable number potentially of, of councillors who are sort of rebelling against the Labour line and therefore resigning, obviously, in Blackburn to, to form this new party. Um, but in Sheffield, it's interesting that 
you know, presumably they decided, well, the split would be so big, more than half of us uh, are willing to break the whip here. So we're going to have to all go in. So if you see more Labour councillors sort of actively backing a ceasefire, obviously, you know, it shouldn't be overstated the significance of this because a, a local council, you know, people rightly actually say that, you know, uh, Keir Starmer doesn't have much impact on whether or not there will be a, a ceasefire. That doesn't mean he shouldn't take a position because quite soon he could have a seat on the UN Security Council when he would, right? But it's not that him taking a position would have too much of an active effect on what's going on right now. And then if you go down to Sheffield Council, I mean, Sheffield Council obviously has almost no no impact on, on what happens now. But I do think that lots of people will be making a very long-term judgment about Keir Starmer and about the Labour Party. This is not something that people are going to forget easily. And so if further down the line, Keir Starmer loses the support of other groups in society, you know, he, he does something that uh, affects the, the pro-leave vote in the red wall that he's really concerned about keeping, or he upsets, you know, wealthy middle class people who are annoyed that there's some sort of tax tweak he wants to change. Then if he keeps losing these groups, then that will cause electoral problems for him. And I do think that he probably has, for now, really, really cons considerably damaged and for the long term, his support among a large group of voters. As I say, not large enough to swing the next election, but a large group of voters, principally lots and lots of, of Muslims in the country, but then also um, lots of people who are on the left or who just really care about international justice. And he, you have to say, he does seem awkward on this, right? It, this doesn't seem to be one of those issues where he has completely been able to say, oh, I just don't care. I'm not even responding to this. So say the Jeremy Corbyn issue was potentially one of those where I think when it came to kicking him out of the party, Keir Starmer only saw upsides. Now, you can argue about whether that's right or wrong, but he didn't, you know, there were no meetings he was forced to have. He didn't sort of come out and equivocate and sort of say, oh, I actually didn't say that last week when he did. On this, clearly, um, he is feeling some heat. He is feeling some pressure, I'm mean, including from some people close to him. Shabana Mahmood is apparently, um, you know, really upset um, at the Labour positioning on this, and she is in the, the shadow cabinet. So there is more pressure on Keir Starmer than on other issues, but I don't expect it to, to significantly change his position. And I think that's principally because he doesn't think it will decide the next election. In terms of new parties, we have kind of seen this before with respect. So obviously the last time, um, I mean, it was more significant, wasn't it? Because Labour were in government. It was the Iraq war, um, which massively pissed off, shed loads of people in the country. Um, again, especially Muslims, but with the Iraq war, it was really a huge broad swathe of, of, of the public. Then you had this party respect, um, George Galloway, sort of a figurehead in that, and they did take some seats, again, in predominantly Muslim areas, so Bethnal Green and in Bradford. We could see a similar thing here. I think probably because, you know, Keir Starmer is in opposition. This is about statements he is making. I wouldn't expect something on the scale of respect because obviously, you know, Tony Blair literally started a war of a foreign country. Keir Starmer is taking a very cowardly, immoral position, um, but it is on a conflict which you know he didn't start. I want to pick up in a minute a bit more about uh, you know whether Keir Starmer has an impact, especially as an opposition leader, because you know there's the argument that as the opposition leader, the point is to put pressure on the current government, who are obviously managing their relations with Israel. But I think we'll have a chance to do that with our next story. So let's move on to it. The Labour leadership has very strong opinions about a ceasefire in Israel's military campaign in Gaza. It would be a bad idea, they say. On other issues, though, they're happy to sit on the fence. Those issues include, but are not limited to, bombing hospitals, bombing refugee camps, and now using white phosphorus. Here's Labour frontbencher Liz Kendall. It's not illegal to use white phosphorus in, in certain circumstances. It is, as far as I can understand international law, it is illegal to use it um, in uh, crowded areas where civilians mm. are. If Israel is doing that, what would the Labour Party want to say? So I understand why you and others uh, have asked and will continue to ask us about individual incidents and what's happening. I think it would be unwise uh, when we are not on the ground to make comments about that and to make pronouncements. I think it's interesting that the prosecutor for the International Criminal Court said earlier this week he hasn't and he won't give a running commentary on what is happening. He will gather all the evidence and look at how the law is being followed by Israel and Hamas. He wants good quality evidence that can be taken to a court of law. That's what he's focused on. 
And if he won't give a running commentary, I think it is absolutely unwise for politicians to do that either. That was Labour Shadow Work and Pension Secretary Liz Kendall talking to Kay Burley. Kay Burley was asking, do you oppose white phosphorus usage? And Liz Kendall was rambling on. She did not say no. And Kay Burley was not asking Liz Kendall about an individual incident. She was asking about the general principle, should white phosphorus be used on civilian populations? Liz Kendall made Labour's position very clear. We can't be bothered to come to any sort of position if the only people being killed in this situation are Palestinians in Gaza. And it didn't get any better for Liz Kendall in that interview. Just heard from the government, they say um, that they would condemn the use of white phosphorus. Is Labour going to... I mean, nobody, nobody wants to see that ever happening. We actually want an end to all loss of life. Uh, but I think it, it is right that those with responsible for dealing with these issues gather the evidence. We shouldn't give a running commentary on that, even though I really understand that people want us to say on every incident what is right and what is wrong. We don't need you to say that about every incident. We just like you to say that about any incident. There doesn't seem to be any action that the Labour Party will take a position on if it only affects Palestinians. And as Liz Kendall found out there, white phosphorus, they're more hardline than the Tory government. Science and Technology Secretary Michelle Donlan had told Kay Burley earlier in the show, quote, I don't agree with the use of white phosphorus. I think that's quite clear. But what is white phosphorus? Well, Amnesty International says this. White phosphorus is an incendiary substance mostly used to create a dense smoke screen or mark targets. When exposed to air, it burns at extremely high temperatures and often starts fires in the areas in which it's deployed. People exposed to white phosphorus can suffer respiratory damage, organ failure, and other horrific and life-changing injuries, including burns that are extremely difficult to treat and cannot be put out with water. Burns affecting only 10% of the body are often fatal. Because of those deadly effects, it is illegal to use white phosphorus in, in or close to civilian infrastructure. And Amnesty International says that Israel has indeed been guilty of that act. This footage, verified by Amnesty, shows what appears to be a white phosphorus incendiary bomb exploding above Al-Mari, a Lebanese town on the border with Israel. As you can see, the bomb explodes in the air and then breaks up into burning pieces of white phosphorus, which burn as they're exposed to oxygen, releasing large amounts of smoke and heat. Amnesty say that this incident and the use of white phosphorus in another town, Daria, should be investigated as a war crime. In their investigation into the incident, Amnesty interviewed the mayor of Daria who told them this. A very bad odour and massive cloud covered the town so that we were not able to see beyond five or six metres in front of us. This caused people to frantically flee their homes. And when some returned two days later, their houses were still burning. Cars caught fire, land areas were also burnt down. Until today, you find remnants the size of a fist that reignite when exposed to air. Infinite burning substance. It sounds literally like hell. And this hell has been confirmed by Amnesty International to be being used in Gaza. Human Rights Watch also verified this video of white phosphorus use in Gaza early on in the campaign Israel is waging there. As you can see, a bomb explodes above that high-rise building and sprays out clear lines of white smoke consistent with the use of white phosphorus. Medical professionals have also said they've seen injuries consistent with the use of white phosphorus. Kay Burley put that claim to an IDF spokesperson. We had Dr. Omar Abdul Manam, a paediatric neurologist who's here in the UK, on the programme earlier on this morning. Um, he says a child is dying every eight minutes, but he went on to make this suggestion that from the injuries he's seen, white phosphorus is being used. Is it? That's a very professional observation from London, from the comfort of his sofa. I, uh, I would be very, very cautious. No, I, I, I'd be very cautious in trying to judge any of uh, the professional activities that are taking place. The IDF operates within the realm of the laws of armed conflict. The tools that we utilize are in accordance to the uh, uh, international humanitarian law. Is it being War used? Challenge. And 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 what and and international humanitarian law does not is prohibit phosphorus being of, used. Hey, Kay, the laws of armed conflict do not prohibit the, the use of. Um, is it phosphorus. being used? 
motives. And uh, I don't know, I don't have any instances where it has been used, but it can Thank be used. Thank you for the clarification. Thank you for the clarification. You're saying it's not been used. Um, I'm going to take your word for no, it, sir. That, you're on the ground. Okay, so I, you're saying, saying it's not being used. But I, but I would say there are legitimate ways to utilise different I munitions. I asked you if it was being used. You said it's not. I'm going to take your word for it. Was that a denial? I couldn't quite work it out. In any case, the IDF is certainly not to be trusted on issues such as this. In 2009, there were widespread reports of Israel using white phosphorus in Gaza. Israel vociferously denied it before backtracking a few weeks later. This is from a Times article published in January 2009. After weeks of denying that it used white phosphorus in the heavily populated Gaza Strip, Israel finally admitted yesterday that the weapon was deployed in its offensive. The army's use of white phosphorus was first reported by the Times on January 5th when it was strenuously denied by the army. Now in the face of mounting evidence and international outcry, Israel has been forced to backtrack on that initial denial. Yes, phosphorus was used, but not in any illegal manner, Yigal Pamor, a foreign ministry spokesman, told the Times. Some practices could be illegal, but we're going into that. The IDF is holding an investigation concerning one specific incident. The incident in question is thought to be the firing of phosphorus shells at a UN school in Betlehaya in the northern Gaza Strip on January 17th. Yes, phosphorus was used, but not in any illegal manner. We use this hellfire that doesn't stop burning when it's exposed to oxygen, but we didn't use it illegally, of course. The UN would go on to commission a judge-led report into Israel's 2009 bombardment of Gaza. It concluded Israel had been, quote, systematically reckless in determining the use of white phosphorus use in built-up areas. Reckless or deliberate? Michael, this substance is horrible. So why are Labour so reluctant to acknowledge the use of it? I mean, I, I don't know. I find it just so awful. I mean, basically watching the Labour Party answer any question on Gaza at the moment. And I suppose a number of reasons, I mean, there are loads of reasons why it's offensive. One of them, I think, is just the lack of of care, right? I, I know they want to. They don't want to take strong positions because they're, you know, they're terrified of being seen as remotely more progressive than the Conservative Party. I don't know why that would terrify them, but it seems to terrify them. But they don't seem to have done, you know, the most basic things to learn about international law, right? And this is going to be obviously, you know, she's 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 not shadow foreign secretary, but this is going to be in the news for a very long time. Shadow ministers are going to get asked about the, the war on Gaza every day. So I feel like they should brush up on some things, right? Instead of just say, whatever they ask you, just say, oh, we couldn't possibly comment. Oh, we couldn't possibly comment. You know, there, there are 2 million people living under siege. You might be too pathetic, too, you know, too abject to, to make a strong position against those people being put under siege. But you could at least learn the basics, right? And the basics are that the reason why white phosphorus is a, it's a, it's an international crime, a war crime to be used in built-up civilian areas is because it is a war crime to do indiscriminate attacks. So it has to be the case that when you, you know, launch a bomb, um, you can say we have made some reference to whether or not we're targeting a military target or civilian targets. Now, white phosphorus, because it's, you know, it, you can't target it, basically, it goes everywhere. That, by definition, can't be targeted if you're using it in a built-up area. Now, that shouldn't be too hard for a Labour frontbencher to know. You know, you don't have to be an expert in the laws of war to be able to say, well, if this indiscriminate bomb is used in a built-up area, that is a war crime, by definition. You don't have to say, you know, did Israel use it here? Did Israel use it there? I think that's fine. You say, okay, well, Amnesty have said it is. Obviously, we haven't been able to do our independent research. We haven't spoken to the British intelligence services or whatever. But you should be able to lay out the basics of what is international law. It's also important to know, I interviewed um, the UK Director for Human Rights Watch yesterday on this show. The thing with human rights law is it, it's not necessarily catching a state out for the worst thing it does. It's catching a state out for the most clear-cut thing it does. So even when you're talking to Human Rights Watch, when, you're, when they're talking about you know, bombing a refugee camp, for example, they will say this raises shed loads of concerns. And I mean, the implication is, I mean, we think this is a war crime. And at least we think this is terrible. We think it's an incredibly morally abject thing to do. But there is an argument that can be made by Israel's lawyers where they say, look, this wasn't indiscriminate because we were targeting a military target, you know, in this case, a Hamas commander. And it so happened that we couldn't avoid killing civilians in, in the area if we were to target this Hamas fighter. Now, I think any argument whereby it's legitimate to kill 100 kids to kill one military officer is, is morally abhorrent. But in the legal sense, 
there is a debate to be had what counts as proportionate. When it comes to indiscriminate weaponry, it, you know, white phosphorus is, is is hellish. I mean, it hasn't killed as many people in this war as as you know bog standard airstrikes has, right? So in terms of the overall damage which has been done, I would much prefer it if Israel stopped using airstrikes and if they stopped using white phosphorus. But white phosphorus is really clear cut because there is no way you can target it. So even if it's causing less damage than targeted airstrikes, it's very clear cut that it would be a war crime because it's indiscriminate. And I don't think it should be you know, too much to ask of a government in waiting, as they keep telling us they are, to know some of the basics on this, to at least be able to give an answer beyond, oh, we couldn't possibly comment. We couldn't possibly comment, which to me kind of just reads as we don't really care, right? If you have literally nothing to say about the prospect of white phosphorus being dropped on the people of Gaza, do you just, is that how little they matter to you? Is that how little they matter to you that th this has been going on for three weeks now? You've got genocidal language coming from the Israeli government. You've got around 9,000 people killed, potentially 1,000 under rubble. You've got 3,000 kids killed. And the only thing you can say is boilerplate. This is very sad, but we can't really comment and Israel has a right to defend itself. I just think it's, it's despicable that you haven't even shown the respect to do the basic research on what is legal, what is illegal, you know, what one might hypothetically be for or against. We're not saying they have to have this, you know, we know exactly who caused the explosion in um, this or that hospital, right? But you can have the basics, your basic principles, what is right, what is wrong, what is legal, what is illegal. They've got nothing to say on any of this. I think you're being a bit too generous, actually, Michael. I, I, I don't think it's a case that they don't know that this is against humanitarian law. The, it's, you know, the, we've seen the internal directives that we reported on in Navarra, the lines that the Labour Party are being told, being whipped to stick to, which is can't possibly comment, I can't do this, can't do that. This is a party led by somebody who has staked his reputation on being, you know, this beacon of law and order. Starmer, at the very top of the party, has been like, well, you know, under me, we'll get fairness, under me, we will get an adherence to law, under me, the law will be the ultimate place where the buck stops, everyone is equal under law. And now, in this first actual major test of both being an international statesman and, you know, his actual adherence to that legislation as a guiding both moral and political force, he's failed it completely. And the party members are just at sea because the stuff coming from the top of the party, the directives coming from the top of the party is, couldn't possibly comment on that, plead ignorance, plead ignorance. You can't plead ignorance when your attorney general is a human rights lawyer, you've got, you know, various legal professionals, but your actual Labour leader is a top form of human rights law. There is no way that you can plead ignorance. I know that white phosphorus use is obviously considered to be, you know, a war crime. I'm not a human rights lawyer. I really don't think it's that they've not done the reading. I think it's that they're too cowardly even to comment on something like that because of the other thing you identified, that they see this as not a human rights issue. They see this as a left-right issue and they think that it's too left-wing to support the Palestinian cause. That's how it shakes up in my, in my mind. Well, let's move on to our next story. As millions of people have poured out onto the streets in defense of Palestine, a common retort we're hearing from defenders of Israel has been this. You guys don't actually understand what's going on. This is actually a very complicated conflict. Stop pretending it's black and white. And the intention of complaints like this is really clear. They're intended to get you to ignore the murder that's going on in front of your eyes because if Israel-Palestine is too complex to grasp, well, you might as well stay at home. You don't want to get anything wrong. You, you just need to sit with someone out. Um, but now an American author has given an extraordinarily passionate rebuttal to those claims. This is Tanezi Coates speaking to Democracy Now! about his recent visit to Palestine. What shocked me the most was uh, in any sort of um, opinion piece or reported piece or, or whatever you want to call it that I've read uh, about Israel and about the conflict with the Palestinians, there's a word that comes up uh, all the time, and it is complexity. That and its uh, closely related uh, adjective, complicated. And so while I had my skepticisms and I had my suspicions of the Israeli government, of the occupation, um, what I expected was that I would find a situation in which it was hard to discern right from wrong. It was hard to understand the morality at play. Um, it was hard to understand the conflict. And perhaps the most shocking thing was uh, I immediately understood 
uh, what was going on over there. Probably the best example I, I, I can think of is, is, is the second day uh, when we went to Hebron and, and, and the reality of the occupation uh, became clear. We were driving uh, out of East Jerusalem. I was with uh, the Palestinian, uh, the, was with Palfest, um, and we were driving out of East Jerusalem uh, into the West Bank. And you know, you could see the settlements, and they would point out the settlements. And it suddenly dawned on me that I was in a region of the world where some people could vote and some people could not. And that was obviously very, very familiar to me. I got to Hebron and we got out as a group of writers and we were given a tour by our Palestinian guide. And we got to uh, a certain street and he said to us, I can't walk down this street. If you want to continue, you have to continue without me. I just think that's so powerful because he's right. It's not complicated. If one group of people can vote and another can't, if one group of people can walk down a street and another can't, and if that's based on ethnicity, not age, not actions, we have a word for that. It's apartheid, or in the American analogy, Jim Crow. That's why people think Israeli policy is racist. It's not a misunderstanding. This is a textbook example of racism. And guess what? Racism is wrong. Let's go back to Tennessee Coates. We walked down the street and we came back and there was a, a market area. Uh, Hebron is very, very poor. It wasn't always very poor, but it's, it's very, very poor. It's a market area has been shut down, but there are a few vendors there that, that, that I wanted to support. And I was walking to try to get to the vendor and I was stopped at a checkpoint. Checkpoints all through the city. The checkpoints obviously all through the West Bank. Uh, your mobility is, is, is completely... Uh, inhibited, and the mobility of, of, of the Palestinians is totally inhibited. And I was walking to the checkpoint, and an Israeli uh, guard uh, stepped out, probably about the age of my son, and he said to me, what's your religion, bro? And I said, well, I don't, you know, I'm, 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 I'm not really religious. And he said, come on, stop messing around. What is your religion? I said, I'm, I'm not playing. I'm not, I'm not really religious. And it became clear to me that unless I professed my religion and the right religion, I wasn't going to be allowed to walk forward. So he said, well, okay, so what was your parents' religion? I said, well, they weren't that religious either. He says, what were your, what are, what were your grandparents' religion? And I said, my grandmother was a Christian. And then he allowed me to pass. And it became very, very clear to me what was going on there. And I have to say, it, it, it was quite familiar. Again, I was in a territory where your mobility is inhibited, where your voting rights are inhibited, where your right to the water is inhibited, where your right to housing is inhibited, and it's all inhibited based on ethnicity. And that sounded extremely, extremely familiar to me. And so the most shocking thing about my time over there was how uncomplicated it actually is. Now, I'm not saying the details of it are not complicated. History is always complicated. Present events are always complicated. But the way this is reported in the Western media is as though one needs a PhD in Middle Eastern studies to understand the basic morality of holding a people in a situation in which they don't have basic rights, including the right that we treasure most, the franchise, the right to vote, and then declaring that state a democracy. It's actually not that hard to understand. It's actually quite familiar to those of us uh, with a familiarity to African, with, uh, to African American history. We'll go further. It's familiar to any of us who, you know, have eyes, ears, brains that hold memory and facts that can remember the atrocities of both the past and the present. It's familiar to anyone who has looked at Sudan with the thousands killed, the 1.5 million displaced. It's familiar to anyone who knows what's going on in the Democratic Republic of Congo, 6.9 million displaced, thousands killed, Tigray. Ethnic cleansing, 600,000 at least dead. Yemen, the largest humanitarian crisis in the world. All week I've seen people making links between what is going on in these sites and what has been happening in Palestine for the last 75 years. And something I've been noticing is forgive me the indulgence, but I work outside Navarro on a podcast about British slavery and the mechanics of the British slave trade. And the way that the British slave trade was orchestrated, the way it was set up, the way that it baked into society, this, these inequalities, the segregation, the continued oppression 
of an entire well, they were they were codified as a race, black, but there was one race, the human race, but entire ethnicity, ethnic group of people is so familiar the way Tenezi Coates talks about, so familiar. Anyone who has any experience, any reading of these sites can draw their own easily made conclusions about what is going on in Israel and Palestine. And that is why you see people standing with Israel and Palestine who are from all different walks of life, you know, anti-Zionist Jews, African-Americans, people, you know, who are struggling for the likes of Sudan right now. These are all interconnected struggles, um, if you'll forgive the political coded speech. I don't think it's complicated at all. I think it is very simple when it comes down to it to look at these situations and look at who has denied their rights repeatedly over many, many years, who is suppressed and dehumanized, and to draw your own conclusions. It's not complex at all. Um, thank you so much, Michael, for joining me this evening. It's been a pleasure as always. And thank you all for watching, tuning in, for supporting us. Remember, if you want to become a regular supporter of Navarra Media, you can go to navarramedia.com slash support. This show will be back again tomorrow from 6pm. For now, you have been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navarramedia.com slash support.